Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. Our guest today is Aaron Wenner, the founder and CEO of SiteRight, a Toronto-based legal technology startup that makes it simpler for litigators to find, cite, and reuse the work they've already done. Prior to founding SiteRight, Aaron received his law degree from McGill University, a master's degree in Middle Eastern Studies from Harvard University, and also practiced at a national firm on Bay Street in Toronto. Our conversation covers Aaron's journey from academic and lawyer to CEO of a startup, how the idea for SiteRight originated, the landscape and adoption of legal tech in the profession, how Aaron's law degree helps him run a startup, and importantly, how Aaron balances the pressure and stress of startup life with having a family. Before jumping in, I will mention this conversation took place a couple of months ago and some of the references are a touch out of date. My bad on that one for not getting it out sooner, but missed podcast deadlines are but one of the many hazards of working at a startup and being literally busier than you ever have been in your life before. That said, it was a fantastic conversation and I hope you all enjoyed as much as I know I did. On a final point, if you or any lawyers you know would be a good fit for the Good Lawyer platform, please head over to goodlawyer.ca slash four dash lawyers and fill out an application today. Links, of course, in the show notes. All right, that's it for me. Please enjoy today's episode. Aaron, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Maybe just to start give the uh, audience a bit of an introduction about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Why did we bring you on this show? <laughs> and I'll let you sure. take it from there. I don't know if I can answer the third one, but I'll tell you who <laughs> I am. So uh, my name is Aaron Winner. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of SiteRight. Uh, we're a legal tech startup based here in Toronto. And what we do in a, in a nutshell is help litigation teams get organized when it comes to legal research so that the people who work with it most directly, the associates, and the paraprofessionals can cite it accurately, reuse it when they need to, and most importantly, deliver it in formats that courts require in ways that are PDF enabled, fully hyperlinked and ready to upload to a court or deliver to a judge so that they can read it on their iPad and move on with their day. And what we are all about doing is enabling entire litigation teams to focus on the really hard substantive work that delivers best results for their clients while automating the friction work that is time consuming, but which doesn't really add a whole lot of value on its own. Uh, And so the more we can help lawyers do and their teams do the stuff that matters, the better they are, the more effective they are, and the better lawyers they can be for their clients. And that's what really we're all about. Well, that's, uh, that's incredible. And you're already triggering some painful memories I've had, especially during my articling years, uh, being up at all hours of the night, trying to get these books of authorities in order and everything like that. So as soon as I saw your product, I was uh, quite excited about it, even though I don't work in a litigation capacity, but maybe just give us a bit of background. How did this come about? Were you uh, a litigation lawyer yourself and saw this problem or how did this idea germinate originally? Sure. So the the idea for SiteRight started early on. So let me give you a bit of a background. I'm trained as a lawyer. I went to McGill for law school. I I went to McGill for undergrad as well, majored in in history and Middle Eastern studies, which is not hugely relevant to what I do now. Did a master's in Middle Eastern studies at Harvard, and then went to law school after that. And, And so my background is in research. I've done a lot of research throughout my career primarily academic research before I went to law school. And then obviously in law school, you don't do a lot of research there. And the other side of my, of my background is that I'm also a self-taught coder. Uh, I've always been kind of techie and I'm always thinking, I'm, I'm always interested in, in ways that you can use code or software to automate things that you do over and over again. One of the ideas that I find really compelling is that if you can describe what you do as a series of ordered steps that you do every time, what you're describing is an algorithm. And there's probably some way you can automate or reduce the complexity of that by, by offloading some of that work to machines. So I went to McGill for law school, 
articled at a large Bay Street firm. Um, and after articling, decided that there were really opportunities in what I'd observed within the articling process when it came to, as you described, preparing materials for court, uh, preparing books of authorities, doing uh, writing citations and organizing them, and thinking about what in a big picture would a tech-enabled litigation practice look like. And I had a lot of ideas flying around, and the more I talked about them to other people, the more excited at least I got. And the more I realized there probably was some, some there there. And that's what ultimately led to my decision after to opt out of the articling process and instead launched a startup. And here we are today, fast forward several years. We built the product, launched it, and we're now in most of Bay Street. Lawyers use our tool from coast to coast. And it's been really gratifying to see how we've been able to make a difference into how lawyers practice. Well, that's incredible on a number of fronts, especially that you were able to get that adoption by as many firms as you have in this short amount of time, because sometimes, you know, firms can be a little reluctant to introducing new technology into their processes, or there's a bit of resistance there. But one of the points that you hit on that I'd like to touch on before we uh, jump into that topic is the idea of combining kind of skills that may not seem to go one with the other. For example, you mentioned that you taught yourself to code and you're a lawyer. And it seems like combining those two enabled you to develop this product and see the opportunity there. Do you think about that? Do you encourage uh, people who maybe come to you for advice to develop skills outside of just a basic legal practice to help you know, either work with their clients better or uh, develop products that can potentially be of use? No, absolutely. I mean, the advice I used to give people is learn to code. And I've changed that a little bit. I don't know how necessary it is to specifically learn to code. The example that I've given before, and then I'll give here, is that as someone who is a self-taught coder, I'm, I'm similar to somebody who is an amateur carpenter. And as an amateur carpenter, I could build you a cabinet. And you probably wouldn't want to use that cabinet because the doors don't fit properly and the shelves are a little bit uneven. But it does mean that I kind of know what would be involved in building a kitchen. And I could describe in the terms that a a skilled craftsman could understand what I was looking for. And what coding has given me is an understanding of where are the opportunities for technology and for code to make a difference so that somebody else who's ideally a much better coder than I am and knows how to do this to a, a professional standard can actually implement them. And so the advice I have is certainly when it comes to technology is you owe it to yourself as a practitioner to know what tools are out there and to have an understanding of what the impact of those tools could be on your profession. It also means thinking critically about what steps you follow, what your tasks look like and how susceptible those things are to automation, not as a a career challenge, but as as a career enabler. If there's things that can be automated, that's great because it will always free you up to do more higher value tasks and ultimately deliver better results for your client. So knowing what the technology landscape is all about is really important. Coding has always been a passion project for me. I I enjoy it like some people enjoy Sudoku. It's very rewarding (laughs) to see, but it's not critical. It's just, it is certainly very helpful. I think that's a a great answer. So, and just staying on this thread a little bit, how have you seen the willingness to adopt technology with some of the clients that you're working with. Was that a difficult process? Are are firms becoming more open-minded to this time-saving technology, or was that something that you really had to bring the hard sell to? I don't think we had to bring a hard sell to it. I would actually rephrase that, you know, there there is a, a narrative out there that law firms are resistant to technology. And what I would say instead is that law firms are skeptical of, of new technology as it affects their current processes. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that the legal profession is one where it takes years to get good at it. And it, there's, there's an acknowledgement that at the beginning, you're gonna be inefficient until you develop your own process and lawyers are encouraged to develop their own processes. And so at, at the end of 20 years of practice, there are ways of doing things that you have developed that are to the outside observer, insanely inefficient and backwards but you are really good and fast at them. And it, would, it, it's a, it is an entirely legitimate question whether any technology is going to replace the skills you built up over 20 years. So it's not as though law firms are resistant. There is a, there is a reluctance or a, a, a skepticism that is completely justified that asks, 
what are the costs of adopting this technology versus asking people to change the way they've done things, especially if those things are efficient you know, with, within their own scope. The second thing I would say is that with law firms, the other source of the skepticism is that lawyers have a fiduciary duty to their clients. They bear a higher burden of responsibility and, and, and in a way that's similar to the medical profession. And if I were to go to my brother, who's a doctor, and say to him, I've got this really great tool that automates some, some billing practices, some, some billing uh, coding stuff, he, he would probably say, okay, I'm interested because it's repetitive and it's hard, to, it's hard to think about, you know, maybe there's a ways to get there. And if I were to say to, at the same time, I have a way of delivering medicine to the patient that's a lot more efficient and a lot faster and will reduce errors. Those are all great things to promise, but my brother's going to say, hold on, there's a real risk here. The patient could die. I, I'm going to be a lot more skeptical of that no matter the promise. And lawyers are the same way. You know, what, what I, in my experience, looking at, from putting on my lawyer hat and certainly in our conversations with clients, there is a question about, you know, what is the risk of adopting this? How much liability are we going to expose to for completely le- legitimate and justified reasons? And so there's a higher threshold that any technology has to cross in the legal profession. It has to be better than the way people have already developed things or not ask them to change the way they've done things for, for a long time because those ways are efficient and doesn't introduce too much risk and liability that uh, affects the, the fundamental responsibility of lawyers to their clients. So getting over those two hurdles is important. And if you want, I can tell you a bit more about how you've done that, but that's sort of the way I'd want to reposition first that that reluctance to, to technology has really solid and, and reasonable foundations to it. Yeah, no question. I think that's a, a great point. And I think with a product like yours, that at least for me, I saw the immediate value that this could add because nobody likes doing the citations or the book of authority. And especially when you have 50 tabs open in your browser and you're can't quite, maybe you didn't take the most accurate notes that your your first pass through and and it it just seems to be a mess. So when you bring a product like yourself, and maybe you can speak to, to, to this, when you bring that to the firms and that value is pretty evident, does that seem to alleviate a lot of those concerns? Sure. And, and, it, and it did that because we had to work really hard in designing the product to alleviate those concerns. And so the way that we started was, uh, you know, it, it started ultimately from an idea of my own, where I'm sitting here at, at uh, two o'clock in the morning, way up in, in an office tower in downtown Toronto, mm-hmm. organizing all of these cases and putting black bars next to the paragraphs that I cited or somebody else cited, thinking there's got to be a better way here. We are not coordinated here. This is, this is very upsetting and frustrating. So that was sort of the, you know, the, the genesis for the idea, like a lot of startups, is it's got to be a better way, scratching my own itch. But the next thing was designing a mock-up that lawyers, the potential users of the product, could see and touch and feel. Even if it didn't do anything, they could understand the actual potential behavior of it and how their practice would be affected by it. So what I did is on my own, I put together a mock-up. I used what was basically Microsoft Paint. Uh, and took a bunch of clips of you know Microsoft Word and a browser and 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 took different boxes together so you could sort of see stage one. I'm gonna here's what things look like. Stage two, I'm gonna go here. I'm gonna open up the browser. I'm gonna click on a page to save the page. Step three, I can see the full text of that case inside Word. Step four, I click on a paragraph and it inserts that paragraph with the proper citation. Step five, as I add new citations, the citations themselves update in real time. So Ibid and Supra. Those things that you know bug young young lawyers are automated for you. And at the end of the day, I push a button and a book of authorities is, is spit out with all the sidebars included. That was really helpful. One thing that we also had on that initial I had in that presentation was a, a note up feature. So because the way that our, we propose our tool to work is to have a list of every case that you cited with the hyperlink back to that original case, we thought, well, wouldn't maybe we could connect back to the legal databases and give you a list of subsequently cited cases, you know, if I, if I cite Jones versus Jones, if Jones versus Jones has been, how it's been treated by other courts, other judges, maybe it's been overturned. And lawyers were with us for the citations and they were with us for the book of authorities. When I showed them the automatic note up feature, universally people said, whoa, 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 hold on. How do I know it works? How do I know it's mm-hmm. going to get all the subsequent citations? How do I know that students are going to actually read the full text of those cases and not just rely on the product? I don't trust it. And that was really helpful for us to hear because the threshold of trust is where we want to, is a threshold of what we need to build. There's some trust that we can build. And that first level of trust is, does the lawyer or the person looking at this tool fundamentally believe this thing is possible? Can it actually work? And the second thing is, 
well, will they trust to use it? And so that was helpful for us to understand, okay, well, if you don't trust this thing, we're not going to build it because it's going to be hard enough to get you to buy it. The flip side is showing people what was possible, what could be done, open people's eyes and minds and, and help them realize, wait a second, this thing that I'm doing every day, it's automatable and it isn't really value added. Think of what I could do if I didn't have to do this one piece. And so crossing that threshold of, of uncertainty, in order to do that, we had to show people what the product was going to be. And we also had to listen very carefully to our potential users about how they might use this. Would, it, would this make sense within their current workflow? What would be the, what would, what would they might be giving up by using a tool like this? And then implementing based on what we learned. So many great points there. The first, and I'm curious how you solve this because I love your approach of starting kind of with an MVP product, uh, you know, a minimum viable product where you literally just drew it out in paint and, you know, to, to see how it, how it would work and, and sure. laid it out there. Now, my question is, and this is always kind of the, I guess, a bit of a chicken in the egg problem is you, you nailed the problem. I think a lot of entrepreneurs or people just solving problems in general struggle with it's because, okay, if we're going to develop this product and learn through iterations and, and, and how people actually use it. As you mentioned, lawyers by nature are somewhat um, conservative and, and for all the reasons you already articulated. So how did you go about bridging that gap in the sense of like, you don't know exactly what you need to produce. Obviously you had some pretty good ideas, but I'm guessing it didn't work perfectly the first time you built this. So how were you able to get lawyers to adopt it and bridge that gap while maintaining that trust, which is so crucial because you're hundred percent right. You know, if you don't have trust with your client and this goes for lawyers, for startups or anybody, that's a, a that's a tough hill to climb. Sure. So there's a couple of stages there. One of them is at the, at the idea stage, not spending too much time on each iteration of the MVP, doing it just enough to learn about what people are going to want to hear, and then really listening carefully to the objections, because those are far more useful than the, the positive feedback. Although the positive feedback is really important psychologically to keep going. There's a writer blogger out there who talks about the mom test, right? And, and, it, and, it's, and it's counterintuitive. If you show something to your mom, she's probably gonna love it. And right. she'll say, this is great. But that's not really all that helpful. What you want to hear is from people who don't believe in your product, all the reasons why this thing wouldn't work, because those are the areas to solve for. And so going through those rounds of iteration were really important. Now, once we had a product in mind, we still have to build it. And getting to build it and hearing the bugs that came out of that was a whole other process. We started actually, this is going back to 2018, we had built the first version of the product and launched it with law students at the University of Toronto. And we just got people, we, we paid them in pizza to come in and, and use our product. And it crashed over and over and over again. And, and that was really helpful to learn because you still have to get the quality correct. Once we got past that threshold, we had some amazing and really patient early adopter law firms who took on SiteRight on a pilot basis and were really just extraordinarily patient and generous with their time as the thing broke and helping us understand where it was breaking so that we could get it into a, a shape where it was going to work. And I guess the, the difference there is you can have a product concept that really is on target, but it still has to actually work. It has to be coded properly. You have to be aware of all the differences in how the, each law firm's computers are set up and all the different ways that that could, could sync your software for just things, you know, there, for, for other reasons like that. That's in the category of the known unknowns, right? You know, there's going to be some problems. You don't know what those are. And you, you need some really patient people to help with that. And that was just, that came from working closely with people, building relationships and finding people who are true believers in what the potential of our product was. And then, and then being just extraordinarily grateful for their time. That's incredible. And for any burgeoning entrepreneurs out there, Please take note of that last uh, breakdown there, because that's amazing. And what I particularly love is that you found a way to test and to build this product in a low cost environment. In, and I don't mean but monetarily, but like by reputational standards, like with the law students, try this out first, work out a bunch of bugs. I think that's super creative to, to go back there before taking it to the firms where you're playing with, you know, playing with live ammunition, so to speak. Sure. That's exactly right. And even then, you know, like I said, we, we, we had firms where it did not work right away. And, and for some of them, it didn't work ever. And that was a, it was a hard thing for us, but it was harder for them. 
And that's why I say, you know, the, the ability to have people who believe in you and, and developing that trust is really important. And, and we, we've always valued the trust that those firms have placed in us in taking a leap. One of the things I didn't mention early on is what we had done. So we built out the MVP. I built out the MVP really, it was just me at the time in, in, in it was Microsoft Paint and then Keynote. Um, I then went to the firms that I had contacts with from my, my time on Bay Street and shopped the idea around and said, basically, here's what I'm proposing to build. I'm not gonna charge you anything. I'd love your feedback on what you think about it. And firms and people were really interested. We got rooms of lawyers together and showed them this sort of interactive model. Uh, I showed them a proposed price, which was also really helpful because you still wanna know like how valuable is your product. And at the end of the day, the goal was to ask them, would you write a letter of intent to on a non-binding basis, maybe potentially use the product in beta form. And so, (laughs) right, I don't need a firm commitment here, but law firms were able to put in writing something to that effect. And those are really helpful because those people were the ones who saw the potential here and were interested in working with us and expressed in writing, they were interested in working with us. And many of those became our, our first customers. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and it's funny you brought up the the mom test because I read that book a while ago and highly recommend it to, to any of you who are trying to build something uh, new because it gives a great framework of just how to elicit that valuable feedback from the people who actually use it. And I'm actually rereading it soon again, just because uh, right. it's, it's, it's worth it. So no, that's, uh, that's really funny. So I, and we'll circle back to your business because I do have a few more uh, questions about that. But one of the things that we love to highlight to on this podcast is lawyers who are using their skills a little bit unconventionally. And obviously you certainly fit the mold of that. I'd like to just get a bit more background from you, from your journey from law school to, you know, working at a Bay Street firm. And then I believe you went back to academics before starting this uh, and just maybe give us a, a brief overview of what you saw, maybe some of the reasons for those decisions not to stay at a big firm or to go down the traditional path and um, what motivated you and how your legal skills have helped you obviously build sure. this business. Yeah. So my trajectory was like in undergrad, I studied history and Middle Eastern studies. I thought I was going to be a journalist for a while. There was no straight path to where I am now. If there is a straight path is that I enjoy writing. I, I, I like a new challenge every day and I, I enjoy research and I enjoy coming up with interesting and creative solutions. That's kind of what I enjoy doing. So after undergrad, I went and worked as a journalist for a year. I was an ESL teacher for another year after that. I went and did a master's in middle, again in Middle Eastern studies because I was really passionate about it. I worked in human rights, burnt out of human rights. But I, what I took out of, out of my time working for human rights organizations was a respect for the advocacy process and a respect for a well-crafted, well-sourced argument as a tool for making change. And so it was that interest in advocacy, which is what directed me toward law school. And because I started law school a little bit late, I was, I think, 28 or 29 when I started, which is a few years older than my, than my colleagues. I was already married when I, when I started. And my daughter was born while I was in law school. That also changed my perspective on what was important to me and what I was willing to do for work. And you know, what, because I had a kid, um, family was really important. Time with my family was really important. And I just didn't have it in me to put the hours in that people who were younger than me or didn't have kids were willing to do. So it was something, it was in some ways out of necessity. Like I, I couldn't see a world for myself where I was able to build up a level of career to the point that I'd be able to spend more time with my family without making major sacrifices in the most critical years of my children's life. So I was motivated by that. I was motivated by what's important to me, what, what matters to me. One thing I also experienced while I was in a large law firm was seeing clients do really cool stuff and wondering when do I get to do the cool stuff? And also sort of realizing that my role as, a, as, as, the, as, you know, as the trusted friend, the counsel was not necessarily going to be the same as the client who was doing what, what they were doing. I was interested in the business decisions and how those business decisions were made and possibly having a role in those business decisions. And also recognizing that that, that was not going to be a role for me as a lawyer within a law firm. And so I was already sort of casting about for what the next thing was going to be. Another really critical factor for me was that I went to McGill and was lucky enough to get in-province tuition at McGill. And that also meant that I was, I had the extreme good fortune to not be crippled by law school debt. 
Um, That really was what allowed me to do what I'm doing. And one of the reasons I always recommend McGill is the finest, cheapest law school in Canada. People say, and it is true, that your legal education can open up a lot of doors, but it will only open them insofar as you're not directed by debt to go to certain specific doors. And that was really important for me. I had a lot of freedom. My, My colleagues at McGill also had a lot of freedom to do really interesting things too. So those were all things that helped me inform my decision to do something slightly unconventional with my legal background. Yeah, I I think your point on coming out of law school with a ton of debt is a poignant one and one that is felt by many listening to this podcast and myself included, and I'm still paying off some of the remnants of that from uh, several years ago, but a hundred percent. And this is actually a topic I've brought up with many other guests, including deans of law schools, uh, this very point saying, you know, we talk about access to justice and having to do things differently, but when you come out of school with a hundred thousand dollars in debt, like, I don't think, I think this is like one of the first times that many people understand what debt is and how that act can take a fundamental impact on their lives because paying back a hundred thousand dollars is not easy is is not easy it takes a long time and it like you said it affects the decisions you make right absolutely and i was there there were other reasons why i was really fortunate that that even even the tuition at mcgill is challenging for many people i don't want to diminish that um but and uh, the conversation about what you know, what law school's role in society can and should be, and to what extent debt needs to play a role there, is, <laughs> is another one that I probably don't want to weigh too much into. Right. <laughs> but, it, but for at least for my own circumstances, and and and, I, and I've seen this again with many of my colleagues at McGill, the the ability to make creative and potentially unconventional choices is one that's enabled by having a very affordable and excellent, really excellent legal education on top of it. Right. So yeah, and uh, don't worry, I'll I'll save that conversation <laughs> for another time. <laughs> uh, I have a lot to say to, to yeah. <laughs> law schools who find it in their interest to to continually raise the price of law school and, and thinking about what impact that is having on our society when you have a bunch of very, very skilled, very smart, very very passionate people who are forced to make decisions that may not be in the best interests of doesn't allow them to realize their full potential. Right. Yeah. Well put. So after this, you continued on your academic journey for a while before beginning this startup. Is this correct? So no. So I actually, okay. I, 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 after, after I you know, finished articling, uh, I went straight into this. I knew that this was what I was passionate about. I had this terrible fear that somebody else had come up with this idea before me because it seemed like such a no brainer and it seemed like such an, like an easy win what really pushed me over the edge, or two things that pushed me over the edge. One of them was my partner was able to tell me, Aaron, like you, you, you seem like you're thinking about this a lot. Take the time to like see where this goes, and that was very helpful. The other thing was the was the belief that the time had come for this idea, and that if I wasn't going to do it, somebody else would. It was just a matter of time, and I I felt like I I, I asked myself, how would I feel if I saw someone else come up with this tool? And I, I just didn't think I could bear it. I think that you know, knowing what this thing was was what was possible, and knowing that someone else someone else might scoop me on it was what gave me the motivation to say, okay, I'm going to shift over and do this thing now and see where it takes me. Amazing, yeah. I think that that summarizes probably quite a few experiences in the uh, in the startup space where. A, the fear of someone else doing it uh, is, and that's, that's a really interesting one. Cause it's, it's almost not even the big wins that motivate you. It's the, oh man, if someone else does this and succeeds, it's almost that, that psychology of, of losing something that you may have had seems to be almost a higher motivating factor than, uh, than the wins, but also just having, you know, that support in your life obviously is hugely uh, important. And I think brings me around to the next thing I wanted to chat with you about, because you do have kids, you are a CEO of a tech startup, which I can tell you firsthand requires a lot of time, effort, and dedication. And not that I'm the CEO, but being part of, uh, of one. Um, and, and this is a great question for lawyers in practice as well, because obviously their jobs are typically demanding. How do you go about balancing that? You mentioned the need to spend time with your kids during their formative years and, and be present and all of that. How do you go about balancing something uh, this complex on a day-to-day basis? It's not easy. And I have a very supportive partner who's able to, to help out. And, and, and in the early years of the company really did take the, take on a lot of that, uh, of that role. It's also just about making explicit choices about what kind of company I want to have, what kind of business I want to run. 
And one of the privileges of running a startup is that those are decisions that I'm able to make in terms of what I want the company to be. And I, I, I was pretty clear early on that what I, I didn't want to reproduce the same type of environment, like a, a similar environment and, and a similar set of pressures as a large law firm. I didn't think that, that was productive either. I work a lot as, as you'd expect, but those hours are my own and I get to set those t- the times when I want to. You know, the, the current situation with COVID and working from home has been made more complex. What I've had to do is really step back and think this is what I, this is, we're, I'm coming off of, of, of two and a half weeks of, of just fantastic relaxation break time about what was important to me and how I wanted to be working better in a way that, that was more respectful of my kids' time and more respectful of my family's time. So how do you do it? It's not easy. It requires thinking from the very beginning about what type of situation you want to set up and a, a lot of patience from everybody. What was easier for me to do this time around, so we're now going into, I don't know how many lockdowns has been, but it's, it's, it's like a hard hit for a lot of people. We all thought we were done with this. And the message that I had for my team, which is really the message for myself, which is everyone in this scenario is working at some level of reduced capacity. Uh, if you have kids, definitely you're at reduced capacity. If you don't, just the mental burden of this thing happening is reducing your ability to do as much work as you'd like. The stress and anxiety we all felt at the end of the year, which I think was ubiquitous. I, I saw it everywhere among everyone I talked to. That's not going away. What we can change is our, is our expectations for ourselves and for what our capacity looks like. And so last year, I responded to lockdowns and COVID and getting my kids being at home by getting up really early, by getting up at four o'clock every morning and trying to get work done. And wow. worked to a, it worked to a certain extent, but it also meant that I wasn't getting done all the stuff I wanted to do. My capacity was still limited and I just felt bad about it. And so this time around, the message to the team, the message to myself is if we're operating at reduced capacity, let's just work with that. Let's, let's, be, let's be generous and kind to ourselves about what the impact of this thing is going to be. Uh, recognizing that we are not going to get all the things done you want to get done. Let's lean into the things that we can do and ultimately pr- try to bring down some of the pressure on ourselves because there are so many things that are beyond our control. So practically, how do you do that? Because I'm always uh, interested where the rubber meets the road because, you know, I've said things like that many times to myself. And then the very next day, I'm, uh, it's 8 p.m. and I'm still responding to emails, you know, and, and it's I find it's it's sometimes difficult to actually implement that. And I, I'm not sure if having the discipline to implement it is the right word, but I'd love to know uh, just your process around that. Sure. I mean, and, and we're, we're, we're a week into it, so I'll let you know in a little bit how it goes. Um, <laughs> Sounds good. It comes, but it comes from starting with what is even possible to be accomplished. And I know like, like a lot of people, I have, I have a to-do list a mile long, but one thing I'm trying to do and to do is say like, uh, there are only two things that I might to-do list every day uh, between two and three things. And if I can get those done, great. When you have less bandwidth, less work gets done. But if I can restrict the amount of work that I think I'm going to do at all, that certainly helps. And that goes for the entire team. There's just less that we can get done, less, you know, there are less tasks in, in, that can be done in a day. That's part of it. Because if you, if you create the expectation for yourself, you're going to get a bunch of things done and don't get them done. That's quite stressful. If you can reduce the expectations, that also is helpful. You know, at, at the end of the day, this is what everybody says, managing expectations is key. And if you can change the expectation about what can be, get done, it's a lot easier to deliver on the things that you are going to get done. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's, uh, that's so important. Uh, do, something do like less. Just do less. You know, and there's some philosophies around that very point and that counterintuitively, you actually get more done that way. Maybe because the pressure's off and actually one of my kind of personal heroes, Naval Ravikant, which you may be familiar with, you know, he talks about this very thing about it. And I think the, I'm going to butcher this, but something along the lines of imagine what you can do if you were not stressed. Yeah. And it's essentially like when you start getting into that, that mind frame of stress, a, it's, it's difficult to think clearly. Uh, you're probably going to burn a lot more energy than you need to just doing the, the tasks that are on the, on the list. And then, you know, it, it's sort of a, a vicious cycle because you probably won't get as many done. But when you take that pressure off a little bit uh, and, and just kind of uh, be able to set a sustainable pace, it seems to produce better results long-term. And we discussed about this before the show a little bit, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about, you said you unplugged for two weeks, which yeah. is almost like sacrilege 
cartilage in the startup community, like, yeah. you know, but, but we were talking about the benefits that came from that and maybe, uh, maybe just share your experience on, on that. Sure. So one thing that my, my co-founder and I set up at the, very early on, because he also had kids, is that our company shuts down for two weeks in the winter. Like you can't come to work. There's nothing for you to do. With certain exceptions, I mean, we have to keep the skeleton crew running. Our support hours are reduced and we communicate that with our customers, which is a little bit easier to deal because for the most part, our customers are off for between between uh, Christmas and New Year's too. But that creating that, that that space and that expectation among our team that this is, this is when we're not working has been really, really important from the top down to explain like, like taking that space is important just in terms of getting a shorter to-do list. One of the reasons I'm not that worried about it is I actually do believe by trying to do less, we'll end up doing more better. You have to go slow to go right. fast and focusing, being dedicated and focusing on just a few things is, is, is really helpful. Over the break, I did no work and it felt amazing. I, I, I went into it the end of last year, really burnt out. It just, it had been a very strong year for us as a company, but I was stressed out a lot of the time and it didn't feel good. And I, I had sort of had, I had half a mind to do some annual planning over the break and didn't, and it felt amazing. So I didn't answer a single email. I didn't open, I really didn't really sit in front of my computer at all for two weeks. I played a lot with my kids. We got a Nintendo Switch and we played a lot of family <laughs> Mario Kart and it was incredible. Like it was, the, it, like everybody had a good time. Everybody relaxed. We, we've just moved into a new house eight weeks ago. And so we used this time to literally get our house in order. And so we're going into the new year with our house organized you know, ref- refreshed and relaxed. And look, we we knew this was this this lockdown was coming, um, notwithstanding that that the leadership of our province decided not to tell us till the very last minute. We sort of knew <laughs> this was coming, and so we all we all sort of knew we're going to need to take some time before things get hectic again to just you know regather and recenter as a family. And it was amazing. I didn't do that last year. I, mean, I remember last year I worked through a lot of the break. And I, I, I felt like that would have been really damaging to do it, to take a similar approach. And so it was, it felt really good to be able to come into the new year with a new attitude and, and, and a bit more relaxed and just not as stressed out as I've been in the past. I, I think it's evident in, I think it's, I think that our, our that the team can see it. And I, my hope is that that approach is, is one that our team adopts as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as I was mentioning before the show, it took me a couple of days just to realize how burnt out I was because like when you're in the moment, you, you maybe don't recognize it for what it is. But once I got through kind of those initial nerves and those instincts to respond to the emails and, you know, keep things moving and all that, I unplugged so hard. I did nothing just like you. And it was like you said, glorious. So I think that that's a really important piece of the puzzle that oftentimes gets overlooked just because, you know, again, we have these endless to-do lists and everything else, but. I mean, yeah, like the, the to-do list I had was around like the things in my house that I had to unpack or like find or do. And like the skill I developed over the break was I got really good at drifting in Mario Kart and like turns <laughs> out the dr- drifting is like a really good way to win. Like it felt that that was a hard, that wasn't, that was a hard thing to learn. And I learned it and it was great, but that, but it was, it was the time with family and the time to just be, and 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 just just sit was was just so so valuable, and I encourage everybody, especially anyone who's in a startup who's doing this, that it doesn't have to be anathema to do that. It doesn't have to be contrary to the ethos of a startup that sometimes you just stop and think, um, right? Because that's what allows you to actually be effective when the time comes to to when you have to when you do have to be effective or respond to a, a late breaking email. Amazing. So switching gears here and kind of getting back to the business, I do want to just get your perspective on the the legal tech landscape in general. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing out there? Are, you know, and what can lawyers expect maybe in the next few years to come? Are, are should lawyers be expecting a lot more of this implementation of these third party technologies, or maybe even of their own? Are are, are we seeing that adoption curve starting to increase? Sure, I think there's there's a general recognition that there are parts of legal process. Uh, and the legal landscape that are ready for some level of automation. Disruption is another is a, is a complicated word, and I probably wouldn't use that. But there are things that people do they ought not to be doing by hand that a robot ought to be doing for them. One thing I'm also seeing is that the hype around AI has died down, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that stuff goes in cycles too, and there was a lot of hype earlier in, in a couple of years ago around 
the artificial lawyer, the robo lawyer, what are, you know, and AI and algorithms automating the entire profession away. At least from what I'm seeing right now, there's been a, a good dose of reality and that that's not really where the profession is entirely going to go. There will still be a need for lawyers, but what will happen is there's, there's much more of a partnership between the lawyer or the legal practitioner, I shouldn't say the lawyer, and the technology that enables them um, to work faster and more efficiently. The legal tech landscape is, is vast. Um, and the early big companies uh, on the litigation side were things like e-discovery. I mean, legal technology goes back a long ways. In some ways, using a computer at all was legal technology in the 80s. And that was a big deal. Like lawyers were early adopters of computers. They were early adopters of online legal research because the value was clear and it was a way easier to use Westlaw to note up a case than it was to go to the card catalog and use like Shepherds. Like lawyers were willing to adopt that when it was useful and, and they saw the value there. So the e-discovery has been is now a uh, just a, a, a fixture of the legal landscape. And what we're seeing now, the contract tech is very, very big is for what I'm right. seeing. So there's a lot of room now to help lawyers who write contracts automate uh, and standardize and centralize and coordinate their contracts. That's really interesting and exciting. Within litigation, there's still a lot of room for improvement and a lot of room for technology. I, I mentioned e-discovery because that's an area where the, the need has been proven and the, and the players are already well established. What we're seeing right now within courts is that, you know, the transition to a remote workspace and, and digital workflows has been really important. Look, courts, courts needed to change in March of 2020 how they operated on a pretty fundamental basis. Everything from, from accepting submissions to how they're going to run trials, how they're going to communicate with, with litigants. And so that technology is still evolving. We're seeing some really interesting changes with uh, a platform called Case Lines being implemented across Ontario and eventually, I think, across Canada. That's had some some of its own growing pains around just changing processes and changing and and helping lawyers accommodate that. One thing we also see a lot of, I'm seeing a lot of, is changes that are to the benefit of one group of acting to the detriment of or or, or creating challenges for others. So um, court technology is a great example where it is really helpful for courts and litigants to be able to have a place where they can share documents and say, your honor, if you looked at tab two of my submission and have that appear on a screen, regardless of where the litigants are, that's great. But it also creates an entirely new set of workflows for the parties before the court, for the, right. for the judges, for the litigants, for everybody. And that's that just requires some rethinking of how people do things. So there are, there are a lot of changes that have to happen on process to accommodate some of those new fundamental needs if you know if we're going to be operating remotely or having these sort of hybrid hearings but it's also a really exciting time because there is i think a recognition like i started out by saying that there is a there is a place for tech and the question is always going to be well how much is it going to cost and is it more expensive than doing it by hand and sometimes you know there's, there's, there's always a balance that has to be made but i find that people are more willing now than ever to at least make that cost benefit analysis and evaluate technology Amazing. And uh, yeah, and that's actually some great counterpoints about lawyers' willingness to adopt technologies when it makes sense to do so. And I agree with you, some of the solutions that have come out in the last few years, and in particular, maybe around AI, maybe they didn't live up to the promise in the way that uh, some expected them and and lawyers rightfully saw that, you know, so that, that absolutely is a, a great counterpoint to this, I, I guess, maybe standard notion that lawyers are just resistant at all costs. But uh, I think if... And what's interesting about AI, what I've seen is that AI, what I'm very happy to see that AI has no longer become the selling point of the tool. If there are many more tools that leverage AI, including our own, but it's not the draw, it's not the, uh, the main piece of the tech. It's about what tasks helping lawyers to accomplish more effectively and efficiently. So... At a certain point, lawyers, at least in our experience, lawyers don't and certainly shouldn't care how the tool works, whether it uses AI or whether right. it uses or a lot of really complicated if statements. Does it work well? Does it get exactly. the job done better? How much does it enable me? That Those are the questions. And, and AI is is now at a point where it does enable a whole lot more. Sure. Sure. But it's because it's but it's about need and about about what lawyers are. It's 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 much more customer focused now as opposed to being the shiny new tool that people feel like they have to adopt right. because if we don't use AI, we'll somehow fall behind, you know, the next firm on the street. Yeah. Is it useful? Can this yeah. help me? 
the yeah. fundamental questions for any product. So how do you see SiteRight playing into this space? Like where, where are you going with this company? What is the, the ultimate vision? So what we see is that there is a real need for legal teams to be, and especially litigation teams, to collaborate and coordinate more efficiently than they are right now. Going back to where I started with SiteRight, I found that the preparing a book of authorities took a long time. But the reason it took a long time is because somebody needed to save the cases in the right folder and they weren't always saved in the right folder. And someone else had to put the citations in along with the right paragraphs and those weren't always done properly. And someone else needed to cite the correct paragraphs, but sometimes the, the wrong paragraphs are being cited. And recognizing that what was going on here, the time consuming part here wasn't the, the final stage. It was the coordinating everybody to get the information into the right format and the right structure much earlier on. And so what I see for SiteRight is our main value is the ability to help law firms organize themselves, arrange themselves more effectively and efficiently without changing fundamentally how they want to do their work. So what we've done with SiteRight is say, okay, by saving a case to the SiteRight platform, it's helpful for, for you, the maybe the articling student, because now rather than having to save it in a new folder or remember where the folder was, it now saves into a dynamic folder that you can then share with everybody else. It's the one place where your source of truth is. Because you've done that, it means the next person who wants to cite that case doesn't have to go and search for it, which is great. And that person might only see might see SiteRight as valuable because it's going to automate their citations. Again, that's good enough for us because by adding a SiteRight citation into a document, it means that the next person in the chain who has to generate the book of authorities or prepare the court submissions now has the case in the right place and the pinpoints already labeled so that all they have to do is click a button and generate that book of authorities. The next step for us is saying, what else can we do that helps lawyers within their, you know, their document jockey type workflow? How do we help them do that faster and more efficiently? And so what we see as a real need for saying, okay, we've worked with helping lawyers organize the legal authorities. How else can we help lawyers organize the evidence perhaps that, that that's the complement to the legal side of their argument? We see a lot of opportunity in document assembly litigators have been underserved by document assembly technology. So if you're in contracts, if you do transactional law, there are some really great tools out there, closing folders being the one that I look to all the time as being a really useful tool for organizing all your documents so that you can put together a closing room really efficiently. Litigation has been underserved by that. Preparing bundles of authorities is still time consuming. There are tools out there, but they're still not great and they're certainly not directed at lawyers and they're fundamentally not based around a collaborative workflow. And so what we want to be able to do is say, as you are working with these, with, with your evidence, that's the time that you should be adding them into a document so that SiteRight can prepare that, whether it's the motion record or some sort of authorities bundle for you. So helping lawyers as they're doing their work, recognizing that legal workflows are themselves valuable and trying to help people in the place where they're in right now in a way that helps the next person down the chain that's really our, our vision. And we think that there is a global need for tools like ours. So there's a really a lot of opportunity here. We expect to grow in Canada. We've just launched our Quebec version, which is another really exciting development for us because that makes us, as, as at least by the way we reckon it, one of the only, if not the only Canadian legal tech companies that serves truly cross-Canada needs, including right. a whole third of the Canadian population with a separate legal system uh, that is that usually doesn't get the, the, the attention it deserves. And so that's been really important to us to say, we should be a litigation tool for all of Canada, not just English Canada, not just common law Canada. So a lot of great directions for us to go. It's going to be a really exciting year. And, and it's a great opportunity for us to grow uh, on the success that we've had and, and on the success that you know, really is due to our customers and, and thanks to them in taking a risk with us and really learning how to make set right, how they've made set right a critical part of their workflows. So we have a lot of learning to do and we have a lot of growing to do. We think there's really some exciting opportunities for helping litigators get their jobs done faster and more efficiently and helping litigators do what they do best, which is yes. ultimately writing, you know, cogent, coherent, compelling arguments on behalf of a client. And the more time you spend doing that work, the better the result and the more value you as a lawyer will deliver for your client. And so the question that we would want people who are, might be considering set right to ask is, 
what do I do right now in the process that isn't really value, that, I, that isn't value added, but I nonetheless have to do? And where are my opportunities for improvement there so I can focus more of my time on doing right by my client? And that's really where the, the place that we think that we can help. Amazing. No, it's a great summary and uh, very exciting stuff, obviously. Now, just being cognizant of time here, you know, I do have one final question I ask all of our guests. And that is, if there was one thing you, you could change about the legal profession, what would that be? Great question. And I don't know if I have a ready answer for it. <laughs> I, I don't, I actually would I'll flip it around and say, it's not up to me to change the legal profession. I think the legal profession, there's a lot of, there's a, always a lot of areas for improvement. I would want to see lawyers think more critically, perhaps, about where their time is spent. And I think they do to, to, to a large degree, but there's a, there are so many opportunities for ways to reduce inefficiencies, which, by the way, don't have anything to do with our technology, um, but you know, really, really can have a measurably better impact on the client that I think you know, are, are low-hanging fruit. Uh, and that could be anything from like learning how to use Microsoft Word better, right? Um, right? There are lots of opportunities there. I think that the that, that, that's a great question that I don't know if I have like, a good rapid answer to. Well, I, I think I'd say there that like process improvement is a an area that is every lawyer should be thinking about at some level because it will pay dividends. So that would be no, my, no my, question. my 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 that, that's my takeaway there. No, that's a great answer and, and certainly something that uh, needs to be thought about because, again, I know many lawyers do, but uh, I also know that when you get caught up being busy, sometimes you don't, and we're all guilty of this, you don't take that time to say, hey, is this the best way I could do this? Could I order this a little bit differently that would help save time and stress going forward? So, right. hey, well, look, Aaron, uh, really appreciate your time, obviously, uh, and and getting to know SiteRate and yourself a little bit better. We wish you all the best in the future and thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show today. And thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. If you or a lawyer you know would like to find out more information about practicing on the Good Lawyer platform, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash four dash lawyers for all the details. Links, as always, in the show notes. Thanks for listening.